Welcome to Out in the Bay. I'm Christopher Beal. Over the summer, the LGBTQIA community here in the Bay Area and around the world dealt with a stigmatizing public health emergency. UC Davis says that Impox has been around since the late 50s. This is not a new thing. It's also not a gay disease. But the way that cis, gay, and bisexual men relate to one another are social networks. They tend to be smaller, tighter, and more intimate in many cases. And this allows a virus like Impox to spread more easily through our community. Over the summer, when all the news about Impox, then called monkeypox, seemed to target the LGBTQ plus community, something remarkable happened. The community galvanized and got vaccinated, even in the face of a nationwide shortage of the vaccine. But who got the shots and when highlights some glaring inequities in our healthcare system. Take Berkeley, for example. This is from ABC7 in San Francisco. Tonight, new details about a vaccine distribution event in Berkeley, where some patrons tell us they waited twice the amount of time because they wouldn't pay a fee. It comes amid an urgent plea for more doses for the region. San Francisco is expected to run out of vaccines this week as a city waits for federal supplies. What happens when members of our Bay Area LGBTQ community pay to skip the line? Reporter Corey Antonio Rose has that story and chats with a health expert about the similarities between Mpox and AIDS. That's today, out in the Bay. Our story starts at the local gay bathhouse. When Steamworks Bass opened up its first come, first serve mass vaccination clinic in Berkeley on July 3rd, It was one of the only options for those who live in the East Bay, across the bridge from San Francisco. I think it's kind of camp to get a a vaccine at a bathhouse. That's Cameron Hubbards, a 33-year-old brand marketer who lives in San Francisco. It's uh, an establishment that serves, like, men who have sex with men, so if that's who we're targeting to get the vaccine first, then I guess that makes sense. And that's Ezekiel Adigan, a 30-year-old personal trainer from Oakland. They both attended the vaccine clinic on July 3rd, but had two different experiences. I'll let them tell you how it went down. So I actually went the day before to SF General and waited in line there. I got there around the time that the clinic opened, was not able to get a vaccine there. This felt like one of my only options. And I felt like I had to jump through a lot of hoops that I was in a very weird position to be able to actually jump through in order to take advantage of this. Yeah, I had a couple of friends sort of let me know that the monkey box vaccine was going to be available at Steamworks. I live in San Francisco, so both of us were going to like borrow a friend's car, drive over to Berkeley, get there a little early, um, and just get in line and wait it out and see what happens. So they said there was going to be 300 doses at noon. Then the day before, I look at the, the Instagram posts on Steamworks' Instagram, and I saw that like 350 people had liked the post. And so I said, oh, this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a little difficult. We get there two hours before the clinic is supposed to start. Um, so we get there a little bit before 10 a.m. Got there at 1030. I had friends who had gotten there at 
10. They were like a hundred something in line. And I got in the line thinking like, okay, I'm like right around 300. I'll stick it out. Someone counted eventually and I actually ended up being like 250. At some point, um, somebody comes down the line and starts handing out paper tickets. Um, they're like little blue, like you would use at a raffle tickets. And I asked him, I was like, does this mean that there's going to be a dose for me? And he's like, yes, this is for like, and I could, what I could tell is they're basically using that to count off how many doses they had. This is like around almost 11 o'clock now. And I noticed, you know, people are like cutting the line. People are, you know, joining their friends or like, you know, saving spots. And I'm thinking, hmm, in another hour, it's very possible that 50 people could do that to me. Then we get to noon, the line moves a little bit and then just stops for a really long time. One of the staff members of Steamworks is going through the line telling people, hey, if you check in to Steamworks, you can wait inside. And we're looking at each other like, hmm, what does that mean? He wasn't very assertive, didn't really communicate very clearly. And we just sort of assumed he was like talking about like, if you just want to go in separately, you can go do that. And we're like, obviously we're not leaving this line. I knew what that meant. They didn't want to straight up say that like, you're paying for priority or that you're paying to skip the line. They didn't say that. They said, if you pay to check into the club, <laughs> then you can wait in the club. That's what they said. And it's, I think it was sometime after the line had like started moving a little bit, we found out that there was in fact a second line um, and that they were letting people in to the bathhouse to also get vaccinated. And so that was enough for me to be like, all right, well, I'm going to go with you because if you're saying I can like bypass this line and go way inside, then I'll do it. But that means that there are people who are there super early who are at the front of one line who are now behind the people who showed up later and were at the very, very end of that line who moved into the second one. I was wrapped around two corners at this point. I go with him and then get in line sort of like maybe 20 feet from the door, 15th or 16th in the paid, the paid line. This is the line to now get into Steamworks. It was only $25, but I knew it was $25, which is why I went so quickly. Had I never been to Steamworks before, right? I don't know how much it costs to check into the club, so I wouldn't. I would have stayed in line. It's a game of telephone. Somebody like in a group, one of their friends would go walk down the line to try to figure out what happened and come back. Like it was not a like we were not getting any sort of like somebody with authority coming out and saying definitively this is what's happening. It was very much piecing it all together. I waited another two, three hours inside Steamworks. And I got there at 1030. I left around 315. It was almost 430 when I left. So that's like a really long time just to be standing outside. And again, I'm very grateful that I had that opportunity to do it, that I'm in the health condition to be able to do it, but like that's not an effective way to distribute a public health resource. You created a way for people to jump the line. When you said first come, first serve, and when you try to schedule your day around a really taking advantage of a really limited resource, not everybody has the flexibility to accommodate a, a system that is changing on the fly and asking you to pay money on the fly. I had the ability to stand out in line all day. Like, I don't think, you know, given certain health conditions, given certain level, levels of ability, like that's not a realistic ask for a lot of people. There's a, just a ton of ways that this could have been handled more equitably. 
I don't know how much time people actually saved, but they certainly created the impression that they were saving time and there was no communication about it. I got there at 10.30. I left around 3.15. It was almost 4.30 when I left. If I had had a job that required me to, to go in for a shift, that this, this day would have not worked. I would have had to either call out or leave that line partway through. There's so many things that, that I'm very fortunate I was able to put up with all that. To me, the onus of the blame should be on the Department of Health. It's like, why is a private business administrating this vaccine rollout? You're listening to Out in the Bay. I'm Christopher Beale. My guest is reporter-producer Corey Antonio-Rose. How did you first hear about what was happening at Steamworks with these lines, with uh, it sounding like people were able to pay and get in and get in faster? How did you first hear about all of this? I had a friend who was going to go. And so about halfway through the day, I just texted. I was like, hey, did you go? Did you get it? And he was like, yeah, I went, but it was a mess. And that's when I found out about the two lines. And I was like, oh, this sounds like the opposite of a public health intervention. Did that hit you as strange when you realized that a a private organization, Steamworks, was sort of handling Berkeley's vaccine rollout at that point? It didn't entirely hit me as way out of left field because I knew that our national services, our national public health advisories are advising local services, local county public health departments to partner with places that are, quote unquote, in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, That could be bars and other places of the country. It's looked like that. Gay bars giving out the vaccine. For me, I think the issue was that Steamworks has sort of this weird incentive to keep people vaccinated in order to keep people in the doors. And on top of that, I don't know, I guess it was the charging for me. It was the money. It didn't bother me that it was at a bathhouse specifically or per se. It bothered me that it was in Berkeley with not a great percentage of people of color in the population. Steamworks already as a place does not have a huge people of color clientele. For me, it made me think about people who might not be comfortable waiting in line outside all day outside of a bathhouse for whatever reasons, work reasons, privacy concerns, what have you. But I understood the the reasoning behind putting it at a bathhouse. My thing was there was such a lack of attention to detail as far as racial demographics. And then when you compound that with you're asking people to pay on the fly, it's like compounding inequality. And so that's when it became an issue for me. Why did you decide to approach it this way? Why did you decide to do this story? I think the story about Impox as a whole, coverage about Impox in the Bay Area has been very myopic. When it was first starting and when we didn't know as much about it, I feel like a lot of the coverage was just based in fear. And it was, oh, men who have sex with men should, you know, lock up the doors, hide under a table until this is all over. There was a lot of trusting the CDC and media coverage around Impox in the beginning without a lot of looking into a lot of questions about the statistical analysis of that research. What are they basing this off of? Are transgender people included in this research that is saying that it's primarily affecting men who have sex with men? And what does that mean? And so I just became so curious about, like, what are all the things that 
the news outlets are not reporting that are obviously part of this story. How is this experience different for people who experience different forms of marginalization, of oppression? How is this experience different for people who don't have the same access to these centers? How is this experience different for people who live far away from these centers where the vaccine is getting offered? Um, Like, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like my experience navigating it as a gay man just as, you know, navigating public health um, concerns, I had a completely different experience than some of my white counterparts. And what I heard on the news was the experience of my white counterparts. Did you reach out to Steamworks for comment? I did not reach out to Steamworks, but their manager was on the news. His reasoning for the two lines was that Steamworks is still a private business, and so they still have to have a way for paying customers to get in. Um... I don't know if that argument necessarily holds up. I would say that, you know, if you are partnering with the public health department to deliver a public health resource, then it needs to be open to the public and there shouldn't be any confusion or the appearance of a fee to get in because that also creates issues, even if there wasn't. Your piece highlights an inequity in vaccine distribution. You did a little digging and you chatted with a couple of other people that I want to hear from now. These interviews were recorded before the change from monkeypox to impox, so you may hear some uses of the old phrasing. Can you introduce us to Antoine Johnson? Who is he and why did you reach out to him? Antoine Johnson is a postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins University. When he was living in the Bay, his work looked a lot about... um, HIV AIDS interventions for Black folks in the Bay and how the experience was different for them. Why did you reach out to him specifically? Because I knew he would have an insight on how those ties from HIV to MPOX get misconstrued or get oversimplified. When there is a legitimate tie, I think those, those issues about lack of access, those issues about you know, racism in trying to access public health are definitely historical through lines. But I knew he could talk about it in a way that highlighted the nuances and maybe gave us some historical examples of things that have happened right here at home in the Bay. It was just framed as a gay disease initially. That's what I got from monkeypox. And you know, AIDS first, you know, the first colloquial term, I guess, was GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency. So um, that was my first takeaway with monkeypox. To be clear, MPOX is not a gay disease. Anyone can get MPOX no matter their age, sexual orientation, or gender identity. And anyone who has been in close physical contact with someone who has MPOX is at risk of getting the virus. That said, it is mainly spreading among men who have sex with men and their sexual networks. The inadequate access to health care, the um, residential segregation, you know, people living in clustered environments, underemployment, all of these structural, structural issues continue to increase people's susceptibility to diseases such as HIV and AIDS and monkeypox. Um, and COVID, because all of these, you know, diseases are operating synergistically. Dr. Johnson said residential segregation was a huge reason why Black folks in the East Bay had to turn down potential clinical trials for HIV and AIDS. 
They lacked access to transportation, childcare, or time off from work to get to the treatment centers, which were often far off from where they lived. So when you talk about equity, you know, you need to take all of these things into consideration because everybody don't have the same access or the same privileges. Joe Hawkins is the executive director at the Oakland LGBTQ Community Center. He learned about what happened at Steamworks from a regular who comes to the center. He said that people were paying to jump the line. He was a young black man and he was he, he was very offended to the point where he left. And there were predominantly white males at that clinic, not all, but predominantly. He just felt that it wasn't a place that felt welcoming and equitable for him as a young black man. I immediately contact Alameda County and said, uh, what the hell is going on? You got to find more community-based uh, places for this ASAP. And then that's when the center opened our clinic at the end of July. What was the biggest challenge so far into getting shots in arms? You know, it's been overwhelming, the sheer number of people who registered on our site. Once people realized that when they were filling out the form, that they could also access other services, those services jumped. Our clinic jumped 233%. That was the increase because of monkeypox. I had to pull people from other departments to help just to get all that data in so that we could schedule people. What were the things that were going through your head as far as like eliminating those barriers to access? Well, first of all, we don't, we, our services are free. So, and it wasn't as if um, the county is charging people for this vaccine. So that was eliminated right off the bat. We, we just knew we needed to do appointment only and make sure that they had an experience that was respectful and uh, confidential and private without cameras around. But also our clinic is run by people of color. I really wanted to make sure that people who had never been exposed to uh, the clinic, they came into an environment that felt ethnically diverse where they could be sort of engaged in a way that wasn't about making money, but just helping them with their health. Yeah, I'm just really happy that people got to learn that these services exist for them free of charge, um, whether it was recovery services or our food pantry even started to, like the food would go really quickly uh, as opposed to taking a couple of weeks or so. It's just that as people were coming in, they were they're also seeing that there's other stuff here for the queer community. And, centering the needs of, of, of Black and brown people in particular. And that's what it should be like. It doesn't feel stigmatized. It feels, it feels like community and just love. I got my vaccine from y'all, I think, last Tuesday. And when I was leaving, I saw one of my good Judy's. I was like, you going to get your vax? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, you know it. <laughs> I know. I, I swear I saw so many people that I know. We were just, and, and actually, you know, if you would know when you came upstairs, there like, uh, there's like a seating area. Yeah, where a little patio sit. with the food they pantry. Like, 
So today, I swear it was like you were at the club. It was, <laughs> but it was so positive. And when you see all the people come in, they get their vaccine. You see the, the you see our community, the diversity of our community, and it's just it's beautiful. You know, it's just just seeing how relieved they are without all the drama. <laughs> you know, it's just like. Wow. So I love I love seeing I see people I know in community and it's just like Joe, yeah, it's just really cool. I, you know, so I'm really happy that some people are gonna get to have a different positive experience. Our city governments, our local governments, and our federal governments. But mostly our local governments need to do a better job with being discretionary and being on top of who we're partnering with as far as making sure that organizations yes. you know, not only are catering to a racially diverse clientele, but also are situated in a neighborhood that is yes. racially diverse and accessible. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering, I guess, from your perspective, I don't know, what's your take on that? Well, you know, I had to literally reach out to them. Now, we're a, a LGBTQ community center that is nonprofit, founded by Black gay people for all people. And our market is predominantly people of color. Not to say that white people don't come here, because they do, but predominantly that's who we serve. The county funds us, so you would think they know that. <laughs> so to, for them to choose Steamworks first was very disappointing. But I, I literally had to say, what, what's going on? You guys need to, we need, we should have been, I don't care if you did Steamworks, which we should have been uh, the, the other place so in La Clinica or Asian Health Services. But what I learned is that they just didn't have enough nurses trained for this. Steam, I'm not anti-Steamworks, but I think everyone saw what it was. And had it been, much, had they been thinking about the, the, the community and the, those communities that have historically been neglected, you think people learn, but, you know, but they're doing it now. So I don't know if it would have happened if I wouldn't have said anything, <laughs> but I, I just know that we as a community, we have to speak up, especially as black and brown people. We have to speak up or know how, how else will our voice be heard? Uh, what is the message that our Alameda County can take from this, that our city of Berkeley can take from this, that our SF County can take from this? Well, next time for sure, I mean, I, I, they definitely need to look at who they're funding and partnering with and, and the diversity of that when they're strategizing how to get services, especially health services and meet the needs of, of of the most marginalized communities. Like they, they need to, that should be like a first instead of a second thought. It's like, how do we get to marginalized communities first? And it seemed the other way around with this, you know? And it seemed like they went to 
It's like gay men have sex. Let's put them at Steamworks. Exactly. Is what is what the thought process exactly. felt. That was like a. That was just very crazy to me. But I get it. But we have the highest rates of HIV, black and brown people. We have very high STI rates in our community. It just only makes sense that that would put us at higher risk for something like monkeypox. What advice would you give for other centers who are servicing black and brown communities who are trying to get this out or trying to work through this in their own ways? Get loud. Act up to say silence equals death. And I just kind of, I remember that. And it's, it, it's so true. Like if people don't hear you, if they don't think you are uh, in trouble or your house is on fire, they won't bring water. Let your voice be heard. If you even have to go to the press and let them know that it, you're not getting the attention that you 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 need. I really just believe those those groups in other cities they just just demand it. Demand that you get that. Corey Antonio, what's the biggest thing that you learned uh, working on this piece? I learned that when public health emergencies happen, some of our public health officials are just as confused as we are. And they're trying to make decisions in the moment that they think are best for the moment. But that does not eschew them from accountability for the consequences of those actions. And so I've learned that in those times when public health resources fail Black folks, Black queer folks, like, it is on us. It, it always comes back to us to help our own and to protect our own. And from a personal standpoint, I guess I learned that white gay men will never save us in the way that, you know, society would love to think that they do. Places like the Oakland LGBTQ Center really are like beacons of light in the community. I would not have known where to get the vaccine if it wasn't for them. My friends would not have known where to get the vaccine if it wasn't for them. Because quiet as it's kept, or as much as we'd like to move on from it, that Steamworks situation did create a situation where a lot of people in our community did not trust our public health services, our public health departments. And they, don't, they didn't trust the decision-making that went into that situation. And so to have a place like the Oakland LGBTQ Community Center really like see that situation, learn from it and apply it, it shows, okay, we know the right things to do. We, it just takes a little bit of thought, a little bit of consideration. Corey Antonio, where can people keep up with you and your work? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Corey A. Rose, at C-O-R-E-Y-A, and then Rose like the flower. And you can find me producing for the KQED podcast right now-ish, anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you.
You've been listening to Out in the Bay, Queer Radio. I'm Christopher Beale. You can catch up on past episodes of Out in the Bay, get in touch, and sign up for our email newsletter at outinthebay.org. You can make a donation there as well. That's outinthebay.org. You know, Out in the Bay is a nonprofit independent production. We don't get any money from podcast platforms, from NPR. We rely on donors like you. Please chip in what you can at outinthebay.org. And thank you in advance. Special thanks to Brad Payton and Richard Merck of Silicon Valley for their ongoing generous support. Thanks also to KALW 91.7 FM and San Francisco Public Press's radio station, KSFP 102.5 FM in the San Francisco Bay Area for broadcasting Out in the Bay each week. If you'd like to hear Queer Radio on your local public radio station, let them know and let us know. You can reach out anytime by emailing outinthebay at yahoo.com. Our founding producer is Eric Jansen. Our theme music is by Holly Mead. I'm Christopher Beale at Real Chris J. Beale on social media. I wrote and produced this episode of Out in the Bay. We'll see you here next week and at outinthebay.org. Out in the Bay.